Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monocle 24 with me, Markus Hippi. Over the next 60 minutes we'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage on Monocle 24 with highlights from our studios here at Midori House and from around the world. This week we meet the celebrated British designer Paul Smith to hear about his latest project. When you look at it in the street you think, well, what's he done? Because it just looks like a silver car, but in fact... On closer inspection, you find it's got these little imperfections and it's it's almost like your jacket you inherited from your father made out of suede that's got little scuffs and marks and things on it. Plus, our man in the city that never sleeps, Henry Ree Sheridan, sends us a letter from New York. I'm learning to drive, but before I can get a driver's license in New York City, I have to undergo an elaborate initiation ceremony. The official name for this ceremony is the five-hour pre-licensing course. All that and much, much more over the next hour here on The Curator with me, Markus Hippi. Beginning this week's show is Monaco's contributing editor Andrew Muller with a wrap of all the things we know now that we didn't seven days ago. Here is Andrew with this week's What We Learned. We learned this week that Brexit Britain's descent into self-parody might yet have further depths to hurtle. Amid a round of appointments of UK trade envoys empowered to advance the interests of British business around the world, we learned that Australia had been assigned Ian Botham. He's out. LBW. For the benefit of listeners in the non-cricket-playing world to whom that clip will make no sense whatsoever, it was dropped in to illuminate that the primary reason for Ian Botham's notoriety is not any formal or indeed informal credentials vis-à-vis international trade, but his prowess as an England cricketer circa 1977 to 1992. 5,200 runs in test matches at an average of 33.54, 383 wickets at around 28, to help. We learned of Botham's bewildering new appointment from the UK's International Trade Secretary Liz Truss, who announced that Botham, who is already a lord for some reason, would bat for British business down under. Well, quite. What we mostly learn from this is that Truss's grasp of Anglo-Australian relations may be somewhat shaky. There is no cohort of people that Australians detest quite so venomously as English cricketers, with particular blind, furious loathing reserved for the good ones. A great innings by Ian Botham. Righto, don't rub it in. We learned anyway that any trade envoying Lord Botham may wish to do any time soon will have to be done remotely, as we learned that Australia's acceleratingly hardcore response to the COVID-19 pandemic had taken another step closer to daubing scarlet crosses upon the front doors of afflicted households. Nine News can reveal COVID-19 quarantine signs must now be placed on the front doors of homes in South Australia. The lifeless streets of Adelaide, near silent and all but empty, the only the morose hum of streetlights, the wistful twittering of birds, the forlorn howl of a lonely wind. And now there's a pandemic as well. Come on, you'd have been disappointed if we hadn't. 
We learned of a further rebuke to the ambitions of Global Britain from the unlikely source of the 27th Universal Postal Union Congress currently occurring in Abidjan. Delegates thereat resolved to cease recognising stamps marked British Indian Ocean Territory, a.k.a. the Chagos Islands. The archipelago is the centre of an interminable diplomatic spat, the short version of which is that pretty much everyone thinks Britain should give the islands back to Mauritius, and Britain doesn't want to. We learned that from here on, post to and from the Chagos Islands will only be conveyed if adorned with stamps from Mauritius. And it looks very much that for Britain, flatly will get them nowhere. <laughs> Whatever. We will be needing at this time a sound effect denoting a 180-degree handbrake skid, segueing smoothly straight back into the theme from Test Match Special with which we kicked proceedings off. Because, returning to the subject of cricket, we learned that amid the general unravelling in Afghanistan, the Taliban, not hitherto known as sport or indeed anything lovers, had made time to meet with the captain of Afghanistan's national cricket team, Hashmatullah Shahidi, shortly due to lead the side in a one-day series against Pakistan. We learned that the discussions were apparently productive. Here is the Taliban's communique read by Monocle 24's cricket desk chief, Emma Searle. A member of the political bureau of the Islamic Emirate met with the captain of the national cricket team. They talked about future programs and ways to improve the team's athletic performance and level. Certainly the Taliban might have considerable wisdom to impart about digging in to grind out a result against superior opposition. And we learned of a terrible, tragic schism splitting Trump world. We learned, first of all, that... Do we have a grudging credit where due sound effect? Mmm. Yeah. Mmm. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, if you like. We learned, first of all, that former US President Benito Cartman had been doing the reading, or doing the being read to, about whose voter base was being depleted by COVID-19 vaccine refusal, and accordingly encouraged a herd of hooting yokels in Alabama to report for their jabs. I recommend take the vaccines. I did it. It's good. Take the vaccines. But... You got, no, that's okay. But we learned with the sorrow which always attends the sundering of a beautiful friendship that this had played badly with one of Trump's most ardent cheerleaders, foghorn-throated, foil-hatted fulminator Alex Jones, host of dingbat conspiracy outlet Infowars. And, you know, we like you, but my God, maybe you're not that bright. Maybe Trump's actually a dumbass. All right, we'll be right back. Stay with us. Join us, Alex, you big weirdo. Join us. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks, Andrew. Next.
to something else we learned this week, and that is that live music is back. The live music industry has had to deal with unprecedented cancellations and restrictions over the last 18 months in order to help curb the pandemic. End of the road, one of the UK's most popular independent music festivals was no exception, and despite having taken place every September since 2006, was forced to go online for last year's edition. Ahead of its return next month, Monaco's Holy Fisher caught up with the festival director Simon Tuff to find out more about the logistical nightmare that is putting on a festival right now. Every single festival lineup has had to go through changes depending on who can get into the country and who can perform. And I think it was Latitude a few weeks ago, you know, all the way up to the last minute, they're having acts drop out because they might have caught COVID or they've got to self isolate. Are you having to think of a lineup and a backup lineup and a backup backup lineup to, to sort of cover all eventualities? I just kind of do it as I go, but I've got a list of a lot of. You know, we made a huge list of British acts that would work, but, you know, we've had to rebook it four times, probably had to rebook the headliners two, three times. I mean, it was funny, like a friend in in the music industry said to me, oh, you probably should just stick with completely British acts. And I thought, oh, we might be okay. I think I was back in like April, March. You know, now I should have listened to it because they're not, none of them have sort of pulled out. So it's gone from like probably 60% American artists to then, an international artist, then it's gone down to 70% UK artists, and now it's like probably 90% UK and European artists, well, 95%, I'd say. But yeah, it's been it's been a bit of a hassle just like obviously doing that. But I'm also very proud of the lineup that we've managed to pull together. And I think it's kind of interesting as well this year to be forced to work within these parameters. I kind of like the challenge. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was going to say, does it feel like a... I, I don't know, I mean, I've been going to End of the Road for years and it do, has always felt like it's had a really strong connection with American music. Absolutely. So does this, year's, does this year feel like a different festival just because you're, because you're working within those parameters? I guess in some ways, but yeah, it's kind of forced me to be more creative and really discover more music in this country and in Europe. And also like doing things like asking Johnny Greenwood to do like, all the soundtrack and he's doing some experimental stuff and headline the garden stage that so I might not for that in a normal year as an actual headliner. So I've quite liked the challenge to be honest. But I mean, obviously it's been annoying not having, there's a lot of great American artists that are well all over the world. There's a lot of African artists that have pulled out Indian artists, artists from New Zealand. They've all had to cancel. So it's a shame. I mean, there are, there are like three or four American artists. So there'll be a, uh, be quite exquisite, I guess, when they play. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I mean, you work closely with artists because I know that you 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 manage some as well, don't you? Yeah, I manage Ezra Furman and a few other artists as well. Yeah, what has your experience been like working with them over the past eighteen months? What what have they been feeling? I mean, it's really hard to not play live, but they've gone off and recorded great music, and it's pushed them to do that, but. I mean, there's a, a new band I'm working with called Modern Women who were just like really building up a following and things were really starting to happen and then COVID happened. So it's kind of like they were put in a cupboard for two years almost. Ezra was kind of lucky enough that he was at the end of an album campaign and he needed to write some soundtrack stuff for another TV show. But at the same time, I think all of them would have loved to play live. You know, that's what keeps them alive and keeps that 
energy of the group together a bit. Also, a lot of the musicians got affected because they, especially Ezra's band, they rely on the live circuit for, to live, really. So, but, but the demand's even higher now. So it's quite exciting. I went to the first full capacity gig. I mean, it's only for 200, but it was like there was a real buzz there. And I think that it was like their best live show that they'd ever played, even though they hadn't played for two years. But just the feeling of coming back to that. Yeah, I'm still yet to go to my first live gig and I am really excited for what that's going to feel like. It's weird. It could be music that you, you might not quite like the music. And then <laughs> it's like I've seen a band that I'm like not the biggest fan of, but you just love everything. It's like being starving and then eating a meal and it's going to taste great. <laughs> <laughs> you actually, you recently sussed up your end of the road record label as well. And I wondered if that was always kind of on the cards or if that was something that was a result of the pandemic. No, I mean, it's not exactly like the most lucrative thing. So it was mainly to springboard the artists that I manage and, and also like have a bit of fun. We're not doing it really for money, we're doing it like to break even and, we're going to do some reissue stuff but it well, yeah, I guess it came a bit from the pandemic of like people who knew had expertise in that area now didn't have work to do really on the festival but the main thing we did during the pandemic was we started like a coffee truck and coffee we're starting a coffee roaster and and that's been quite fun building that brand and it's gone really well so that's one of the things we did during the pandemic. Were you employing out-of-work musicians? Yeah we it was like a nice sweet thing but and I thought, first of all, I hope it doesn't sound too sort of gimmicky. Like, but it's actually really worked out because it's created this great community. And there's like, you know, 10 or 15 of them on this rotor and this coffee truck. And now even that music's back, I'm going to keep the same policy because it's just got so much flexibility. So they can, you know, be baristas and then go off and record and then come back and go off on tour. And it's created a really cool community. And we're going to build another coffee truck soon. And it's been quite exciting with it's also kept me tapped into a lot of new young exciting musicians end of the road festival director simon turf there in conversation with monaco's holly fisher to hear the interview in full alongside more stories about the return of live music and nightlife listen to this week's episode of monaco on culture on our website monocle.com forward slash radio We also learned this week that Tokyo is once again the place to be, as the Tokyo 2020 Paralympic Games began earlier this week. For Tuesday's edition of The Globalist, Emma Nelson was joined on the line by Devin Haru, CBC News Olympics correspondent in Tokyo, to look ahead to the global sporting event overshadowed by the ongoing pandemic. Devin began by bringing Emma up to speed. This has been a long wait. I've been in Tokyo for 39 days at the start of the Olympics and then waiting for uh, 16 days for this night. And now we're just hours away from the opening ceremony. Let's start with the news. I can now tell you that there is a record number of Paralympic athletes competing in these games. 4,403 athletes will compete over the next 12 days. And considering the fact that this is in the backdrop of an incessant pandemic, a pretty remarkable by all standards here. I mean, the the, the news that's, that's coming out of Canada or from the Canadian Athletic Village is we've made it, we've got here. 
That's exactly it. And I've covered this team close, 128 in the Canadian delegation. And listen, I talked to one of our Boccia stars, Alison Levine, yesterday from Montreal. She got on the court inside the beautiful Ariake Gymnastics Centre and she broke down crying. She said, yes, this is it. We finally arrived. And that is just it, being here, finally arriving, right? Because for so many of these people uh, living with disabilities, it is a challenge in daily life. You compound that with a pandemic and it becomes increasingly more difficult. So the, the rallying cry around here is that, yes, we're here, we've arrived, but we also understand there's so much more at stake, not only in competition, but for the Paralympic movement as a whole. Tell us a little bit, a little bit more about how much COVID is still dominating things. I mean, it was such a huge factor in the run-up uh, to to the Olympics a few weeks ago and and one wonders how much of a threat it's posing to this this part of the the event it is omnipresent right um so we felt it the second we arrived here i arrived on july 17th and uh you know faced a 14-day quarantine sort of semi-quarantine where you know i was confined to the hotel and the olympic venues and the transport in between that uh, there's a sense here in tokyo and in japan which of course is in a state of emergency still um that they don't want these games, right? We saw so many surveys leading up to both the Olympics and Paralympics saying the people of Japan overwhelmingly didn't want tens of thousands of people from around the world coming here. So when you're on the street, there are masks everywhere, inside and outside. There's just this always present feeling that they don't really want international visitors because of the situation that exists here in Tokyo right now. And that is that cases continue to rise. In Tokyo alone, we're seeing five, more than 5,000 cases on a steady basis day by day. So, uh, you know, throw into to the mix all this Paralympic uh, drama here. And I believe that the International Paralympic Committee is on tender hooks right now, sort of white knuckling these first few days to see how it's going to go. IPC President Andrew Parsons telling me in a sit down interview over the weekend that there will be positive cases in the athletes village. Their job is to contain it. So that is the task right now. What about your job as as a reporter trying to cover all this stuff? I mean, we, we've, you've obviously had to be quarantined for, for a while and then things got a little bit more um, relaxed. I mean, what is the atmosphere like among reporters? Do you still have that feeling that everything is going to get the coverage and the excitement that, that you traditionally associate with the Paralympics? Or is this still a slightly more subdued and, and, and lower key job? It's a wonderful question, and and I'll be vulnerable with you about the fact that there there was some personal struggle for me about whether or not I should be attending this. I am a reporter for the public broadcaster in Canada. We are the official broadcaster of the Olympics and the Paralympics. I am the only reporter that does all of our platforms on digital and radio and television on the ground here in Tokyo. I am staying the longest. This has been a grind. It certainly has tested my my fortitude throughout all of this. The 17 days between the Olympics and Paralympics, when everybody packs up and leaves town after the big five ring circus of the Olympics, and you're, you're left sort of deflated and wondering, 
how people are going to respond to the Paralympics. That's always one of the talking points around this. Are people going to be receptive to the Paralympics, which of course doesn't get the spotlight the Olympics does. So for me personally, I can't speak on behalf of the other media, which are now all arriving here from around the world. But for me personally, I feel a great responsibility to represent these incredible athletes on this largest athletic stage because once every two years in the summer and in the winter, Paralympians get their spotlight. And like I said to begin, there is so much more than just a game to be played here. The athletes really feel the spotlight of the world is on them and they want to showcase what people living with disabilities can do. And I'm here to share those stories. That was the CBC reporter Devin Haru in conversation with Monocle's Emma Nelson earlier this week. Still to come here on The Curator, we sit down with the celebrated British designer Paul Smith to discuss his latest project. We head to Milan for a tall story and the head chef of London's Paradise Restaurant picks one of his favourite Sri Lankan recipes. Stay tuned. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. Keen for a quick tutorial on where you should take your business over the coming months? The really brilliant products are brilliant, not because of a marketing campaign or it's because they've managed to get some incredible ambassador. They really are good because they add value. Interested to learn how one of the world's biggest pharma companies responded to the pandemic? We need what's called warm preparedness. So we need public health systems that have the supplies ready, at least for the initial phase of a pandemic. Curious about the future of air travel? Everybody's looking forward to connect with the world, connect with friends around the world and just spend some leisure time and some relaxing time abroad or wondering whether shops will still matter there's thousands of different journeys through the store that anyone who walks in could take from ceos to editors-in-chief cmos to chief strategy officers our series is a fast-paced intimate discussion with chiefs big and small from around the world that's the chiefs right here on monocle 24 or wherever you find finer podcasts You are with the Curator, our weekly highlights show here on Monocle 24, and I am Marcus Hippie. You'd be forgiven if you thought the grey market was one catering to those over a certain age, but it turns out it is something entirely different. For Thursday's edition of The Globalist, Monocle's Georgina Godwin was joined by the New York Times Styles reporter Elizabeth Payton to unpack the boom in grey market discount resellers. Elizabeth began by explaining what exactly the grey market is. 
We all know about the counterfeit black market in luxury, um, but the grey market is another extremely lucrative part of the industry that isn't a new phenomenon, but is seeing a lot of popularity um, as people start spending um, in the wake of the pandemic or in the last sort of year or two. And, and put simply, the grey market sells authentic luxury products, often current season products, but at a discount from the prices that a brand can set. And often sellers take advantage of the pricing differentials across different regions of the world, because um, as we know, um, a handbag in China, for example, can actually cost as a result of taxes and duties up to 30% more than it would in, in the US or, or in Europe. Um, and so for a long time, there have been um, purchasing agents or small businesses catering uh, to consumers who want those products at cheaper prices. Uh, but what we've also seen now are, are a number of Western contenders emerging, um, looking to exploit these loopholes um, and bring customers bargains on luxury goods. And how are the big brands being affected by this? Well, it's, it's, it's a big deal for them. I think, I mean, look, historically, there are some industry observers who would say that luxury brands turned a blind eye uh, to grey market tactics. Um, you know, a lot of product would come out of the back door of uh, small Italian factories or small independent wholesalers who would report in um, sales, even if they were at a discount and, and the brands would just take that on. That's definitely not the case anymore because this market has has spiraled out of their control. Um, so really, they're doing a lot. Um, the main thing that they can do really is crack down on, on their wholesale networks and try and control uh, their own retail networks so that they can stop leaks or see uh, where product might be uh, leaking out into the grey market. Um, you know, I think it's important just to stress that really grey market tactics are not illegal like counterfeits. They just, you know, as I said, exploit loopholes in the system, which are tricky to, to, to close. That having been said, they can sometimes violate distribution agreements between brands and, and their wholesale partners. Um, so there has been an uptick in sort of brands threatening civil actions to enforce contracts. Mm. Um, what we're also seeing, though, is just a big uptick in brands using auditors to track tech, you know, their supply chains. Uh, some are even using blockchain and chips uh, to track products, um, which is also sort of taking place in the secondhand resale market, which is sort of a cousin market to this one in some yeah. ways. Now, we know that China is a, a big market for, 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 for this for this grey, this, this whole grey area, uh, and luxury has been booming. But uh, Xi Jinping recently uh, has, has made remarks that have absolutely spooked the market. T tell us more about that. Yes, I mean, this is this is relatively new because he only gave this speech last week that promoted um, ideas of common prosperity um, and wealth distribution. Um, but that really rattled investors in the luxury market. Um, you know, the big players like LVMH, Caring, Richemont um, saw, saw losses to the tune of 70 billion last week in a sell off, which is absolutely massive. And I think it really underscores just how dependent the global luxury market has been historically and expected to be. Uh, on China, which isn't yet the biggest luxury market, but certainly is is the fastest growing. Now, um, the market has been spooked before. A few
few years ago, China cracked down on, on conspicuous consumption and, and gift giving, which led to a downturn. Um, but to what extent this latest move will have um, and weigh on the sort of psychology of wealthy consumers uh, still remains to be seen. Um, because, of course, um, as you've heard already this morning, um, there is the looming impact of the Delta variant, which... Um, is also spooking investors. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, when I uh, when I was reading your article about this, I of course went and checked out all the links that you put in there for <laughs> these grey market places, uh, just to see if I could in fact find that elusive cheap Gucci bag. It's not. It's not cheap though, is it? No. Well, look, ultimately, you know, luxury goods are extremely expensive. And the the, the whole writing of the article ended up um, resulting in some quite interesting conversations because, uh, you know, some readers have got in touch with me and said, ultimately, the prices that luxury brands have been charging are extortionate on some of these goods. Um, And actually, if it's not illegal, why shouldn't I use these grey market sellers to try and get 30% off uh, off a bag of of several thousand dollars or or whatever the price may be, which is a good question. You know, if there's no illegal activity, uh, is it easy to say who is right and and who is wrong uh, in this equation? Um, But I think that that general appetite for luxury goods um, and for bargains is is what's driving this market growth. And as I touched on earlier, the sort of growth of the secondhand resale market, um, which has absolutely exploded um, in the last 18 months and over the pandemic. That was Elizabeth Payton from The New York Times speaking to Monaco's Georgina Godwin for Thursday's edition of The Globalist. Staying in the Big Apple for our next highlight, as it's time now for our letter from New York City. This week, Henry Rhys Sheridan takes to the road, or not as it seems, for a driving lesson. I'm learning to drive. But before I can get a driver's license in New York City, I have to undergo an elaborate initiation ceremony. The official name for this ceremony is the five-hour pre-licensing course. The Department of Motor Vehicles says the purpose of this course is to provide the knowledge you will need as a new driver. But this is a lie. It's true that the course involves having information about driving transmitted in your general direction for five hours. But not even three-time world memory champion Ben Pridmore could possibly retain all of that information. The real purpose of the five-hour course is to simulate the mental strain and prolonged physical confinement that confronts the New York driver. The logic is clear. If you can't make it through the five-hour course without fleeing the classroom, how can you be trusted to suffer through gridlock without exiting your vehicle and jumping up and down on the surrounding cars like a rhesus monkey at Longleat Safari Park? And if you can't at least feign interest in the American Automobile Association's guidance on signs, signals and markings, There are hundreds of images along the roadway that help you find your way. Most come in the form of traffic control signs, signals, and lane markings. How can you be trusted to navigate the Brooklyn Queens Expressway without being sick all over the dashboard? 
You can't. That's why the five-hour pre-licensing course is so important. Last week, it was my turn to take the five-hour course. The instructor is wearing the oversized green shirt, knitted yellow vest, and thin moustache of an absolute pervert. The thought of being stuck in the same room as this man for five hours is hair-raising. Thankfully, I'm doing the class remotely, over Zoom, and there are 32 other pupils in the Zoom classroom taking it with me. So, plenty of eyes in case the instructor tries to pull a Jeffrey Tubin. For the first 90 minutes of the class, the instructor simulates various traffic scenarios using a tiny, extremely accurate model of a yellow New York City school bus. Then he announces that we will be watching some educational videos courtesy of the American Automobile Association. Black and white signs provide regulatory information. For the first few minutes, I try to concentrate on the substance of the videos. This end school zone sign indicates when it is safe to return. The problem is that they are extremely boring. See this sign violates the law. You must wait until you have passed the sign before you can accelerate. But then something catches my attention. Great game. Yes. Hey, are you good to drive? Unlike you, I've had a few. So I got a ride share. Good call. Hey, see you Thursday. See you, buddy. We know it's never okay to drink and drive. Now we need to remember that it's never okay to text and drive. Studies have shown you're distracted for up to 27 seconds after using your phone. Don't drive intoxicated. Don't drive intexticated. A sobering message from AAA. Intexticated. I've never heard this word before, and its implications disturb me. In the video, the driver's intextification is caused by him typing a message on his phone. Is the composition of digital messages the only cause of intextification? Or can you be intextified by other means? How about devising a strongly worded email to a millennial-oriented kitchenware company in your head? You're not typing but you are formulating text with your mind. What about merely ruminating about text that you haven't even made yourself, such as you might find in books and periodicals? As a high-profile public intellectual whose brain is constantly mulling over the intricacies of world literature, that would surely put me at high risk of spontaneous and possibly fatal intextification. I had lots of questions for the instructor, But the class had moved on, and I was reluctant to prolong the experience for my fellow pupils. Only time will tell whether or not I'll perish in an intextification incident. I've suggested to my wife that, on each car trip, one of us is designated as a sober driver who must abstain from text of any description for the duration of the trip. She has refused to consider the proposal until I actually pass my test. That was Henry Rhea Sheridan reporting from New York City. 
Well, if Henry does ever get his driver's license, he may be interested in taking a listen to our next highlight. As for this week's edition of Monocle on Design, the team sat down with the esteemed English designer Paul Smith. Having built a reputation off the back of his namesake label and signature multicoloured stripes over the past 50 years, Paul Smith is a pillar of the British design scene. His work crosses fashion, furniture and industrial design in projects across the globe. And his latest work is the development of a concept car called Strip, in collaboration with Mini and BMW. To find out more about the vehicle and Smith's approach to design, Monocle's Nick Moniz caught up with the creative, who began by sharing some key features of his latest design. The starting off point was that I think the Mini shape is fine is good the one that is currently in production so i didn't want to change that at all but what i did do was i didn't paint it so that the body is raw it's raw steel the way it just comes from the pressing and so it's got lots of little marks and uh, a little it's got character on it so it's got little scratches and marks and you know it's not perfect at all then I just put one simple layer of clear lacquer on it so it's a bit like the outside when you look at it from the street in the street you think well what's he done because it just looks like a silver car but in fact on closer inspection you find it's got these little imperfections and it's it's almost like your best pair of jeans or your the jacket you inherited from your father made out of suede that's got little scuffs and marks and things on it so the outside is is like that also the the roof is plexiglass completely recycled and recyclable i've stripped the whole of the inside of the mini out so you can see all the actual frame itself and when you look into the roof for instance you can see the the actual frame of the car there's nothing covering it up with roof lining or anything i sprayed it in a, a amazing blue inside a bit like an eve klein the blue he used and you can actually see the rawness of the, the car from elements of it. You can see from the outside from the roof and the rest from the inside. Um, on the outside, uh, what they call the spats on the outside, some of those are 3D printed in recycled and recyclable materials. I mean, you know, I know from our conversation off air that some of these pieces on the outside of the car can be taken off using an Allen key. They're almost modular and I guess that other components like the airbags are made visible and that there's no sat nav and you know you've also got this amazing cork dashboard which is both beautiful and I guess a revolutionary use of the material you know given all of this can you tell us about any other parts uh, that are significant and what they're made of and, and maybe touch on on the sustainability component too a lot of the other parts are made specifically for this one-off car made out of uh, aluminium and on the centre of the uh, the steering wheel, you can actually see the airbag. It's just behind net, uh, like a mesh. The steering wheel is, going back to my love of cycling, the steering wheel is covered in cycling tape that you would find on a handlebar. The doors are fabulous because it, it's just got a, a, a recycled mesh on the door so you can see all the workings of the door and the inside of the door, and you can see the speakers are revealed for the music system. And then the actual door handles are uh, mountaineering rope, which have been made into a, a sort of sausage, and they're how you close the door. 
it's really stripped out and so well done Mini because they're already doing lots of amazing sustainability projects and as a company BMW and Mini are, are really conscious of global warming and the planet and they're doing wonderful things and all I was saying is well what if you know what if we took that out what if we did that what what about this what about that so who knows what whether it'll i mean it's the minis it was it was in london then it's it's going to munich for the car fair and then maybe it'll travel to some of the um design fairs around the world because it's very interesting and it's very thought provoking whether or not it'll ever progress into elements of it going into a production car or whether there'll be a Paul Smith production car we haven't had a conversation about that so I don't really know but it's really interesting I mean that was that was my sort of next question Paul it, it, it's a concept car at, at the moment and as much as it could develop into something for Mini and BMW and a, and a relationship with you do you hope that maybe other manufacturers and designers see this and, and, and kind of go like wow you know we, we could use cork in our cars or, or modular removable materials and that maybe it sort of challenges conventional thinking about vehicles Yes, I mean, that's definitely one of the, I suppose, hopefully it's a strength, is, um, you know, I'm quite well known for my lateral way of thinking about things and not going down the obvious route always. I mean, you're probably familiar with my shop in Los Angeles, which is a, a bright pink box on Melrose Avenue. And, and yet my shop in my hometown is in a building built in 1736. So as a company uh, and the fact that we've had this wonderful longevity as an independent company, not part of a big group, is I think often because I am always enjoy challenging myself and and saying what if and I've never sit on my laurels and this room is full of um, things things that are inspiring and and I always describe this room as a, a room that's not childish because it's full of toys and objects and kitsch and beautiful but it's more about being childlike and and being childlike is is in my opinion is where you've not cluttered with education with experience with travel you haven't got strong reference points of things you've witnessed so you've got this freedom to just say well why don't we try that or let's have a go so to answer your question in a very long way around is yes yes i i hope it inspires not just car manufacturers, but if you look back in history in the 70s, like uh, Richard Rogers, uh, you know, in the Pompidou or the Beauberg Centre in Paris, had all the services on the outside. Uh, German designer Dieter Rahm, who did all the wonderful things for Braun. Often you'll see a radio and you can see all the workings inside. So certain designers over the years have, have, have just been brave enough to, you know, just do things differently. I mean, I guess just building on this, how does this, I guess, way of thinking relate to the the car industry and other industries more generally? One of the huge problems for a car manufacturer, a restaurant, a hotel, a newspaper, a magazine, is that you're very conscious of all your competitors. And so as a car manufacturer, this is me saying this, not many, and I don't know whether it's true, but, you know, if, say, every company has a four-wheel drive and they've got all these, uh, it's got the certain sat-nav detail, it's got a projector, it's got a flat screen, it's got this, then you're nervous to not have those things because you're buying a car for yourself or your family and you think, yeah, but this has got that and this has got that. And so having a car that is stripped everything out, I can completely understand from a commercial point of view, could be 
quite nerve-wracking for the owner or the financial <laughs> aspect of the company because you're being almost a bit too pioneering, you know. I want to ask you as well, Paul, you, you talked earlier about the difference between childish and, and childlike and I guess the importance of being childlike. Can you, can you tell us how this relates to your approach to design? Yes, I mean, I think that the, the uh, childlike and childish is just an expression I use, but, but I think the point is that childlike... I don't know whether you've got children or whether you, you, you know, you know young children, but they're very honest. You know, why's that man got a big nose? Or why is he big? Why is he small? Or I don't like this food. You know, they're very really honest because they've not gone through that whole thing about, oh, that's not very well-mannered or this is... And that. so if you, you've got this wonderful freedom of stuff, you're not referencing things. And the problem with, uh, certainly in fashion... You know, you're very conscious about, oh, well, that brand is doing that and they're doing this and they've opened a shop there. And so you're always got these reference points and these things that you're nervous to do slightly differently. And I think that's making the world very homogenized, very plain and not exciting like it used to be. I mean, I'm an older person, so in the 60s, which is when I was a teenager, you know, it was the second or third, maybe, second generation after the war. The previous generations had been really repressed and really held down, and suddenly we were allowed to say, oh, let's grow our hair long, let's wear a shirt that's got flowers on it, let's, let's play this odd music called Psychedelia and Pink Floyd and Led Zeppelin, all those bands that were very pioneering. There was this sense of freedom, and now I think, unfortunately, we're just full of reference points. And, of course, with social media, you can get slated very and be criticised very, very easily within seconds. So people are a lot more cautious, about, a lot more nervous. Uh, do, do you mind if I ask you to, I guess, elaborate on these reference points? I guess I'm, I'm curious where you've experienced this in your own work or, or life. Can I just talk to you about a conversation I had with my grandson recently? He's a classical pianist. Uh, he's at university. I talked to him about his exams. And he said, if I play Stravinsky, Brahms or Chopin, then my tutors have reference points. They can understand. They've heard all the pieces before, so they know this part should be slower or quieter. Or... So that I draw as a parallel to all the brands looking at what each other are doing and then he said to me but I did a, a an unusual piece and luckily I got marked well for it but the interesting thing is the tutors don't have a reference point they, they don't know how to crit it because they've never heard it before so being pioneering is a wonderful thing but it's also quite nerve-wracking in terms of running a business, uh, financial success, or in the, in the case of education, you know, getting the points you, you desire. And then I guess just finally, I'm curious how you find, I guess, the confidence to do away with those reference points and, and take a childlike approach and really try and do something new without fear. You know, have, have you had any experiences with that? And I'm sure you have, but over the course of your career? My business has always been built on, on this at the front of my body, which I'm putting my hand up in front of me, and this, which is at the, behind my body. And, and what that is, is a, it's an illustration of a seesaw or a, or a balance. And the hand in front is to do with image, innovation, 
attention-seeking, special things, fashion shows twice a year in Paris, a beautiful shop in Albemarle Street in Mayfair, another one in Saint-Honoré in Paris, the pink shop in LA. But here, my hand behind me, is the fact that we sell a very large quantity of beautiful, simple navy blue suits, white shirts, polo shirts, chino pants, and also that we've got shops in Soho in London, Soho in New York, the Marais in Paris, downtown in LA. So it's very much about having the balance of keeping the image high, and that equates to childlike, doing things special, doing things different, doing things which are quite self-indulgent, and then paying the rent with more commercial things. So the way you achieve it is by having commercial pieces that help the cash flow and the overhead and your survival, and then you do the self-indulgent pieces, which you know my financial director will always question who always question them. Is this really necessary? Why are you having the show when we've actually finished selling anyway? So what's the point, you know? And the point is your future. You know, the point is, you know, I've been in business now for 50 years and it's always about looking about today and tomorrow, not resting on your laurels. There's a very scary but good sentence. Nobody cares how good you used to be. <laughs> which is uh, something that's always in the top of my mind. The celebrated British designer Paul Smith in conversation with our very own Nick Monis for this week's edition of Monocle on Design. Still to come here on The Curator, Top Chef shares a favourite recipe and we head to Milan for a tall story. Stay tuned. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. The Power of Sound is our brand new series. Each week we speak to various audiophiles, from musicians to wildlife recordists to sound engineers, about the expansive nature of sound and its ability to recall memories, evoke emotions and blow our minds. The fidelity was so great. I th- remember thinking to myself, I think I can tell what color socks the drummer is wearing. Whether it's an epiphany at a concert, a sound that brings back childhood memories, or a moment of clarity from a brilliant pair of speakers, we learn what good audio means to our guests, including Arlo Parks, Chris Watson and Hannah Peel. Even I was on stage trying to hold back that feeling of shivers all the way down your body and your spine because of this just gigantic, warm sound. The Power of Sound is available to download every Thursday from monocle.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The Power of Sound, in association with GIF. You are with the Curator, our weekly highlight show here on Monocle 24. I am Marcus Hippie. Next, we look back to the latest edition of Food Neighbourhoods. For this week's show, Marlin de Silva, the head chef of London's Paradise Restaurants, picks one of his favourite Sri Lankan recipes. Hi, I'm Chef Marlin de Silva and I lead the team at Paradise in Soho. Paradise is a modern Sri Lankan restaurant based in the hustle and bustle of Rupert Street. My approach to Sri Lankan food is ingredient-led 
and we use contemporary techniques to push the boundaries of Sri Lankan food. Sri Lankan cuisine takes cues from South Indian, Dutch, Portuguese, Malay and British colonial influences. Today I'm going to give you the recipe of one of my favorite dishes that we've just introduced to our short eats menu at Paradise. The dish is going to be raw green and ripe yellow mango acharu. In Sri Lanka the term acharu means pickled. We would eat an acharu at the start of a meal as a palate cleanser or together with our rice and curries to add another dimension to our meal. I love using mangoes. They are such a humble ingredient that get used in lots of different ways. We use mangoes to make curries, acharus of course, chutneys and many other different ways as well using it with meats and so on. For this recipe you would need two green mangoes or semi-ripe, ideally green, and one ripe mango, 15 grams of salt, two and a half grams of chili powder, one gram of ground black pepper, three grams of turmeric powder, one and a half gram of cumin powder, 240 grams of coconut vinegar ideally, and if you do not have coconut vinegar, white wine vinegar would work as well. 60 grams of sugar and 60 grams of water. Except the mangoes, get all the other ingredients together in a pan, bring it to a slow simmer so that all the salt and the sugar will dissolve in the liquid and it infuses with the black pepper, the cumin and the chili powder and let that cool. While it is getting cold, peel the mangoes and prep them to a desired shape. For me, to serve in the restaurant, I always slice them very thinly so I can arrange them to the shape of a little rose. And then I use marigold oil in there as well. But if you do have some marigold flowers or marigold leaves at home, please make sure you can use them in the end product as well. So once the liquid has cooled and the mangoes are prepped, immerse the mango pieces in the marinade and leave it overnight to marinate in the pickling liquor and then the next day drain it from the pickling liquor and you got the mango acharu. And use it as a snack or to go with any of the rice and curries you would have at home and enjoy. The head chef of London's Paradise Restaurant, Marlin De Silva, there for the latest instalment of Food Neighbourhoods. We are nearing the end of the show, but we have time for just one more highlight, and that comes from this week's edition of Tall Stories. During Italy's post-war economic miracle of the 1960s, cities were in desperate need of affordable apartment complexes in which to house the workers so critical to the nation's recovery. Too often these projects, which were situated in outlying districts, were of poor design and soon became eyesores on the cityscape. Yet one promising building in Milan, the Monte Amiata housing block, has stood the test of time and is still today a thriving mini-city. Monaco's man in Milan, Ivan Cavallio, visited the complex and brings us this tall story. As the dust settled on the Second World War, much of Europe was left with a crippling shortage of housing. In Milan, plans were drawn up to create satellite communities. In the late 1960s, one site, northwest of downtown, 
became home to the Monte Amiata housing complex, which is situated in Milan's Galatarese district, a neighborhood whose name has become attached to this collection of residential apartments that has become a benchmark for urban housing. The complex's design, made up of five structures, is the handiwork of Carlo Almonino, who brought in his colleague Aldo Rossi to design the final building. Monte Amiata sits on an odd-shaped triangular parcel of land. Two large eight-story blocks are splayed along its south side. Another, six floors high, extends north from the intersection of the first two, while the final, Amonino building, is a two-story bridge connecting buildings and helping to form two triangular raised piazzas and an outdoor amphitheater whose underside helps create the entrance to the complex. The last building, by Rossi, is a long three-story high slab placed parallel to one of the taller blocks. From above, the complex resembles a futuristic key design. Now a half-century old, the work, which houses some 2,500 residents in a range of flats and a selection of shops, is an accomplished attempt to create a micro-urban community. While both architects were intrigued by Le Corbusier's Unité d'Habitation, Aimonino and Rossi pushed ahead with a design that absorbed various influences. Aimonino drew from the stepped Roman amphitheater and Trajan's market to create complex typologies of apartments stacked upon each other at various recessions, alternating glass blocks with balconies and red window frames. Rossi looked at the 1930s and the paintings of Giorgio de Chirico to create a building that completely contrasts with the others. His singular rectangular structure is a strict white plastered autonomous block, while a minimalist open arcade occupies the ground floor. The white paint stands out against the muted red, yellow, and brown hues of Almonino. Even after 50 years, and despite its position on the outskirts of Milan, in an urban periphery that typically sees signs of neglect, this work of modernist architecture remains remarkably relevant, especially for those today looking for examples of how to create small-scale urban communities in big metropolises. That was Monaco's man in Milan, Ivan Cavallio, with the latest episode of Tall Stories. And that's all we've got time for on this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced by Sam Impey and presented by me, Marcus Hippi. Join us again next week to hear some of the very best of the programmes here on Monocle 24. And thanks for listening.